Welcome to the Hutchmoot Podcast, brought to you by the Rabbit Room Podcast Network. If you're wondering what in the world a Hutchmoot is, you are not alone. Let me give you the short version. Hutchmoot is an annual arts conference hosted by the Rabbit Room in which we gather people together around art, music, story, and faith. If you want the long version, check out the website at hutchmoot.com, where all of your questions, or at least some of them, will be answered. In this conversation from Hutchmoot 2019, acclaimed jazz musician Ruth Naomi Floyd and author Mark Minnell use African-American spirituals and the works of Russian composer Dmitry Shostakovich to examine the power of music and its ability to carry us through the darkest of human experiences. Over my head I see freedom in the air Over my head I hear hope in the Truth is in the air. There must be a God somewhere. There must be a God somewhere. Somewhere there must be a God somewhere, somewhere, somewhere. In the midst of the deepest despair, with no liberation in sight, dehumanized, oppressed, and abused, the African prisoners of the forced labor system in American slavery lifted their heads, composed songs, and sang. My great-great-grandmother, Rose, was an enslaved African in America. Am I a mule, she asked. No, she was a woman, six foot two feet tall, six feet tall and two inches, and was taller than and almost stronger than any other human in the surrounding counties. Intimidated by her size and her strength, her master made her be a mule. For 12 hours from sun up to sundown, this unusually beautiful woman pulled the heavy plow through the dirt 
By the time Rose was 28 years old, her spine was in the shape of an S. Because of the heavy labor, her organs shifted and no longer functioned. And after a lot of pain and suffering, she died several years after giving birth to my great-great-grandmother, my great-great-grandmother, Hattie, who lived to reach the age of 102, 109. Yeah, 109. For many years as a child, I would ask my great-great-grandmother, tell me about your mother. And she'd listen, look at me and say, and when she would say child, C-H-I-L-E, that meant with love. Child, hush now. But when she said child, that meant stop asking. One day I took enough courage while we were rolling greens from her amazing vegetable garden. She taught me how to dress a table. She taught me how to keep house. And I was tied to her apron string. She would say to my father, this child who I didn't birth is as if I birthed her myself. She won't leave me alone. I think even as a young child, I knew there was a lot of history and a lot of suffering there. And I asked her one more time, and she said, you have 10 minutes. Ask all the questions, and that's it. And I asked her so many things. She didn't remember much about her mother, but one memory she had was of Rose, her mother, searching for beauty. Coming from the fields, Rose would always bring with her something beautiful to put on the butcher block, whether it was a pine cone, a twig, a flower, a weed, a leaf. And she would put it on the butcher block. How? Do oppressed people have the fortitude to see and search for beauty in the midst of oppression, in the midst of injustice? The earth consumes Rose's sorrow and birthed her endurance, her strength, and the joy of chasing beauty within me. But why should we focus on the past? Because we must tell the truth. The whole truth. We cannot change the fruit without addressing and dealing with and understanding and acknowledging the root. We cannot cast aside the suffering and the pain. That is not telling the truth. This history, as in all history, has a human life, a human face and spirit to ignore, forget, and put aside these facts, events, and this history is to discount these precious humans' lives and their journeys. How can we reach for beauty in a time of darkness? We will have to endure, moan, and sing the blues. There's a famous image, although it was never photographed, of Dmitry Dmitrievich Shostakovich. It's probably apocryphal, but it does represent something of his story, and so it is worth telling. It is midnight in Moscow, and this has stopped working again. It is midnight 
perhaps in winter. Our protagonist is in his 30s and he is fully dressed. He's wrapped uh, warmly in a thick overcoat, scarf and hat. And he's patiently waiting outside the family apartment uh, in the sort of foyer area by the, the elevator. And beside him is his small overnight case packed with a few pajamas and essentials. And there he stands and waits hour after hour. And he smokes. He was a chain smoker nearly all his life. And he's waiting for the NKVD, the predecessors of the KGB. Uh, he had known very dear, very close friends, in fact, who had been arrested, exiled to Siberia, uh, or worse. And one of his closest friends was executed. The purges of the 30s proved that absolutely nobody was safe. Even his sort of protector, a very senior general in the Red Army, General Tukhachevsky, who was a music lover and a very cultured man and protected him, but even Tukhachevsky was arrested and executed. That there was pressure put on Shostakovich to denounce his friend. He went into the KGB, uh, the Lubyanka, several times. Uh, and then uh, just as he was preparing the next day to go in, finally to have to give in, he just couldn't see a way out. Actually, the interrogator himself was arrested in the purges and killed. So Shostakovich got away without having to do it. So there he stands outside the apartment and basically uh, a bundle of nerves tensing up the moment the lift machinery started cranking into gear. You see, he's standing there because he doesn't want his family to be disturbed when he's arrested. So he'll go quietly. Night after night, he waits for an arrest that never in fact came. And it's an extraordinary image. It, it, it's what inspired uh, the British novelist Julian Barnes to write um, his latest novel, oh no, the last but one, The Noise of Time. And uh, you see, on, that's the British edition, and there's a drawing of Shostakovich waiting outside the flat. And, um, and you know, it, it, it's a fascinating novel. It's perhaps not one of his greatest. I, I'm a fan of Barnes, but it, it is a fascinating exploration of why, what possibly was going through his mind. And, of course, one of the big questions people ask about Shostakovich is, did he compromise? Did he kowtow to the authorities, to Stalin and uh, the rest? Um, and actually, it's impossible really to know because a lot of it is to do with what was going on inside his heart and mind. Um, but it highlights the fundamental reality that we need to grasp, and that is Stalin. Um, I discovered this extraordinary little clip, this sort of gift that... Um, is of Shostakovich walking past a poster of Stalin in his home city of Leningrad, St. Petersburg. And basically, someone was filming this in the 30s. Um, and you just get a little glimpse of him, just a slight sort of tremor in his face as he sees this picture of Stalin. Just have a look. What is going through his mind? Stalin had begun his ascent to the top of the Soviet Communist Party before the 1917 revolution, inevitably. And by the 1920s, middle of the 20s, soon after Lenin had died in 24, Stalin had de become de facto dictator. So, and he would be in power for 30 years. 
And Shostakovich was 18 when Lenin died, which basically means um, <clears throat> Stalin was in power for the majority of Shostakovich's adult life and his working life. And anybody who stood out from the crowd in the Soviet Union always caught Stalin's attention, um, uh, especially if they were in the arts. Um, Stalin was a supremely cultured man, um, and so Shostakovich was noticed. He was a genius. How could he not? And um, he composed a funeral march by the age of 12, um, was admitted to the Petrograd, as it then was, conservatory, age 13, to study piano and composition. He was precocious. He wanted to be his own man, even at that early stage. So in the, in the conservatory course, there was a great pressure to, to conform to the great heritage of the Russian um, orchestral uh, lineage, um, you know, the Tchaikovsky's and, and all the rest. Uh, but actually, he was more interested in Stravinsky and Prokofiev, um, who were both a little bit older about a decade or two older than Shostakovich. And so he was already trying to imitate them in his teens. In order to graduate in 1926, uh, like every other student across the Soviet Union, um, you had to pass an exam in the methodology of Marxism, regardless of your uh, specialty. And Shostakovich failed it the first time, so he had to retake it, perhaps a hint of what was to come. But when he passed, he wrote for his graduation piece what is now known as his first symphony, um, which he wrote at the age of only 19. It's a colossal piece. It was premiered um, immediately. It was a triumph, and it spread internationally. So it was premiered the next year in Berlin and the same year in the US in New York. Um, and so he was fated, and he was still only 20. Already he was a superstar. He was clearly destined for great things. If only Dimitri had not crossed paths with Uncle Joe. Uncle Joe loved the arts. He frequently attended the ballet and the opera. He was knowledgeable about his uh, history. He was encyclopedic about various things. He was a voracious reader. He claimed to read 500 pages a day. Now, that's probably an exaggeration, but he did read widely, and his library when he died was astonishing. And he had no illusions about the danger presented by creative types, because they're not very good at conforming. And so, unfortunately, Stalin noticed Shostakovich. Sorry, my laptop, it kicked off my, uh, my talk, so now I need my reading glasses, which I sometimes need, um, so I think I just got right back on. All right. The change of the African prisoners of the forced labor system in America... Um, endured the slave trade middle passage, strangers in a strange land, brought about uh, this oppression, rapes, whippings, murders, false spiritual indoctrinations. Uh, the Caucasian uh, pastors and ministers changed the liturgies to enforce uh, slavery. The colonization of the mind, the breaking of flesh, spirit, and will. The disemboweled corpses with bulging eyes and twisted mouths swinging from the sweet scent of southern magnolia trees. Strange fruit indeed. 
Dr. Martin Luther King stated, abused and scorned though we may be, our destiny is tied up with America's destiny. Before the pilgrims landed at Plymouth, we were here. Before the pen of Jefferson etched across the pages of history, the mighty words of the Declaration of Independence, we were here. And as Malcolm X says, we did not land on Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock landed on us. The great abolitionist Frederick Douglass tells us, slaves sing most when they are most unhappy. Masters didn't really understand that. You have gobs and gobs of letters saying, my slaves are happy. They don't mind. He didn't understand the blues. The songs of the slaves represents the sorrows of his heart, and he is relieved by them only as an aching heart is relieved by its tears. But even in the darkest time in American history, there was beauty, redemption. God took something ugly and made beauty out of it. Beauty redeemed, and he did it with song. The root of most American music is derived from the African-American spirituals, blues, ragtime, folk, gospel, jazz, R&B, hip-hop, etc. The spirituals were the creation of the enslaved Africans in America. The stolen race was deprived of their languages, families, and culture, yet their oppressors could not take away their music. The slaves took their knowledge of everyday life, mix it with hope. Hope is dangerous. Did you know that? It's dangerous to hope, Mark. Hope of the spiritual as well as physical deliverance and took this, their native African rhythms and out of that created the spirituals. What do you mean beauty redeemed? I wish they were here to know that the music that they composed in the midst of dehumanization would be the root of most American music. That is not debatable. That is the truth. Yes, as if, I've, if I took you and plopped you in Poland for 20 years and you were a composer, of course that culture would influence you and there'd be remnants of that. I mean, there were remnants of your homeland, but there also be these nuances of this new land. So yes, they heard other music and other melodies and extracted them and applied them, but the root of it is the root of most, if not all, American music. So that is Beauty Redeemed. That is, in the midst of tribal scattering, in the midst of everything, they created and they sang. I've known moonlight, I've seen starlight, I will lay this body down I walk to the graveyard and stretch wide my arms I will lay this body down and he did an old slave 
said goodbye to his family and walked to the graveyard, dug his grave, laid it down, covered himself with leaves and twigs, and died. You can't get more blues than that. Many of the spirituals were composed in a f form of call and response. It was a community music. It wasn't just like, I'm sad. It was this kind of community cry, community blues. And they would sing it together. That is utterly West African, merit, West African tradition. So we're going to sing. Did you know that? This is a singing workshop. Mark will lead us. <laughs> um, this is your part. I will go. I shall go to see what the end will be. I will go, I shall go to see what the end will be. All right, stand up. We won't make you work. Aren't you happy about that? All right, so the leader would say, done made my vow to the Lord and I never will turn back now. I will go, I shall go, to see what the end will be. Done open my mouth to the Lord, and I never will turn back now. I will go, I shall go, to see what the end will be. Well, King Jesus came and died for me. I will go, I shall go, to see what the end will be. Well, he died upon that rugged tree. I will go, I shall go, yes, harmony, harmony, to see what the end will be. Done made my vow to the Lord, and I never will turn back, no. I will go, I shall go, to see what the end will be. Good. So what? Have a seat. Good. Great job. Thank you. Give yourselves a round of applause. <laughs> right. So what is the end will be? What was the end for the enslaved Africans in America? Yes. Hopefully freedom in the life beyond. And so... There's many myths, myths that they were illiterate, they were proliterate, they came to this country speaking three to four tribal languages. There's a myth that, um, and my parents believed that they were colonized. What they were taught in school was like, slavery was terrible, but God moved in mysterious ways and at least the Africans came to know Jesus. Well, I'm sorry, you're not reading the eighth chapter of Acts, boo. You're just not doing it. If that's the case, how did our African fathers, theological fathers, know the word of God and the gospel? So there are many, many myths, but with that was a true, strong, strong belief in the hereafter. But 
One of the myths was like, I'll just be a good slave till God calls me home and then I'll be freedom. You hear the master say, work hard, pick that cotton. Guess what? When you're done, when you get to heaven, you'll be my master and I'll be the slave. So work as hard as you can on this earth and you'll be rewarded in heaven. And a lot of them worked hard as they could, believing that. So there are a lot of myths, and there's a lot of evil in beauty, which we both talk about in the midst of this beauty, surrounded by evilness. Um, in this case, for greed, for absolute greed, and for free labor. But there's songs of the blues. Is Massa going to sell us tomorrow? Farewell to my only child. It goes on, it goes on. Selling the slaves, selling black bodies, selling humans. <laughs> Imagio Dei. So the Christianity that was preached was an overdose of this verse. Slaves obey your masters, but somehow they neglected the passage, break every yoke, and set the oppressed free. So what am I saying? There was a vast gulf of difference between the Christianity that was preached and the, preach, and the Christianity that was practiced. But in the, in the midst of it, there was still this beauty of communication. That's really the beauty of, of African-American spirituals. There was these secret messages, because two to three slaves could not be present without a white person for most of slavery. And so they can be like, hey, we're running away tonight. Let's go. I'll meet you by the big tree. They had to see it another way. Walk together, children. Don't you get weary. Walk together, children. Don't you get weary. Walk together, children. Don't you get weary. There's a great camp meeting in the promised land. Gonna walk and never tire. Walk and never tire. Walk and never tire. There's a great camp meeting in the promised land. Go to the woods, keep walking. You get tired, keep walking, keep walking, walking, and we'll meet you there. But the spirituals were two-sided. When they sing that great spiritual wade in the water, slowly, that meant that someone has waded on to heaven. They've gone. When they sang it fast, it was like, boo-boo. <laughs> the dog chatters are coming. They're coming for you. The hound dogs, the bloodhounds, you better what? Get in the water because... Yes, because it takes that away, takes the scent away. So there's this beautiful, all these expressions in the midst of evilness, of communication. And that's not unique to the African-American experience in America. You go to the Holocaust where I've been honored and humbled to stand on that sacred land. And you hear the music from the Holocaust and you hear these different meanings. But as a way of that beauty in the midst of this evilness, that it was still there. Propaganda has always been a concern for communists, as indeed for capitalists. Uh, it's indulged in by every regime there is. Uh, but in um, the Soviet Union, as indeed other regimes, they understood perfectly how music in particular can rally troops and marshal the people. And uh, all totalitarians know this, which is why they must control it. Um, there had been, interestingly, in the early years of the Russian Revolution, there was a lot of flexibility and um, there were some remarkable um, creative things going on um, I I at the end of the, the teens and early 20s. 
but when Stalin came to power, he, he tightened things up immensely. And by 1932, the Ministry of Culture in Moscow was in charge of absolutely everything. And so a new union of Soviet composers, as a parallel to the union of Soviet artists, of writers, and so on and so forth, uh, they um, controlled anything to do with music across the entire Soviet Union. Eleven time zones is how big it is. Still, Russia is almost 11 time zones. Um, and they controlled everything. They controlled who played, who composed, where they played, who got the instruments. Absolutely everything was controlled. Now, of course, the flip side is that there was great provision, there was education, there was all kinds of different things. It's very easy in the West, and perhaps particularly in this country, to see communism as just a dark monolithic hole. It wasn't. There were many benefits, there were many good things. But basically, if you did not comply, you didn't get money. Simple as that. Or you ended up in big trouble. Um, and they insisted on a number of things. Um, so, you know, what, what did music have to do to conform? Well, there were a number of things. The first is obvious. The themes of the music, and I don't just mean the melodies, had to be uplifting. They had to sort of instill fervor. Um, and they had to comply with what began in the sort of writing world in the Soviet Union, and it spread to all the arts, what was known as socialist realism. And it was coined by Maxim Gorky, the, the, the writer, as a project for literature, but it, it spread. Um, so according to Marx and Engels, the inevitable trajectory for um, power transfer, if you like, in society is to go down the social scale. And you can see this on from the Middle Ages, <clears throat> from the monarchs to the aristocrats to the bourgeoisie, and then finally through the middle class to the workers, the proletariat, who had been exploited by all of the above. Um, and basically, because nobody gives up power sort of, um, sort of freely, unilaterally, you have to seize it. You have to have revolution because nobody will give up power. Um, once they get it, they will hold on. Um, and so socialist realism must depict that struggle, which is ongoing. It must depict the struggle um, because this is what we're all engaged in, to build the perfect society. And by the way, if you're not attracted by the idealism of communism, then I don't think you're human. Because there is something uh, marvellous, something grippingly uh, attractive and optimistic about this, where there is fairness, where there is justice, where the wealth gap is removed. We're far too complacent about that. Um, so you can depict struggle and suffering in your art, but it has to have a purpose, it has to have a trajectory, an eventual victory. You're allowed to portray suffering, but only if it coheres with that class narrative. So despair is an anti-Soviet feeling. Uh, I collect communist jokes. Uh, this is a good one. What's the difference between communist fairy tales and capitalist fairy tales? Well, capitalist fairy tales begin once upon a time there was. Communist fairy tales begin once upon a time there will be. <laughs> now, who are the people who are putting this into practice, who are actually achieving this great victory? Well, it's the party. It's the party. And so you must glorify the party. 
Is this going to work? It does work now. Weird. Um, they're the people who are selflessly giving themselves to this cause. And friends, there were people who really were selfless in it. It was said in the concentration camps under the Nazis that actually the best people often in the camps were the communists. They were loved because they genuinely believed and gave themselves up for this ideal. And any, for many, they were much better than the Tsars, which basically was pretty much a slave society until the late 1800s. Serfdom was ingrained in the whole system. And so we must never forget that, that for countless millions who lived under the Tsars, this was better without a shadow of doubt. So it's right to show gratitude to the people who brought that. And gratitude is a good thing, isn't it? And we must support and do everything we can to help them achieve what they're trying to do for all of us. Or are you so individualistic that you don't care about the whole? So the focus of socialist realist art is to portray the struggle and to rally people to get involved because it takes all of us. So we glorify those who are really doing it. Um, but of course, you see, the West has rejected that whole project. They are inured in capitalism. They're quite happy to allow the rich to keep getting richer. And so therefore, we must be very wary indeed of influences from the West because, of course, they will just corrupt us. Um, and so it's very important that actually in the arts, you, you, you withdraw, you, you, you don't allow yourself to be tainted by these Western capitalist influences, uh, because unwittingly, we might just reinforce this corrupt and corrupting system. And um, of course, there was a slight um, pause in this during the Second World War, because suddenly, um, we all found ourselves in very odd alliances. So the UK and the US are allied with the USSR. Um, so suddenly it was more about patriotism than idealism during the war. And there were great sort of um, uh, partnerships between the UK, US and USSR. Um, and Shostakovich was involved in that, as we'll see. Um, and, uh, and yet, you see, when the areas that had been conquered by the Nazis were recaptured, by the USSR and the whole business around Stalingrad, Ukraine and all of that, those people who had lived under maybe two years of Nazi rule found themselves immediately suspect because they had been tainted by the West. So as soon as the war is over, or as soon as the Nazis have been defeated in those areas, many of those Ukrainians and others were executed because they were now infected by Western influence. And then finally, it must be accessible to the people. Because, of course, we're serving the people. This is all about the people's revolution. We are doing it for them. So the theory is that the arts must succeed, or sorry, can only succeed when it's accessible to the people for whom it is written or created. Melodies, therefore, needed to be catchy. So socialist realist music does some very weird twists and turns, but it has to be, you have to be able to catch it, you know, catch it quickly. Um, and of course, it's extremely, it's extremely difficult to write a catchy melody. Um, I, I did study some music and I tried to do some composition and I was 
pants at it. It was just rubbish. It was just very, very derivative. I just could not do it. But, you know, even for the great composers who are acutely aware of their heritage musically, they've studied all the greats, to be able to craft a new melody that the people can just, you can hear them singing in the factories, man, that's hard. So one of the things they did was to resort to folk music because that was safer. That, 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 that had a sort of track record of accessibility. Um, and that's also another reason why many Soviet composers actually did a lot of film music, because film music was important for movies, and movies were very important to the Soviet Union. Um, sometimes it's thought that you know, film is just a, um, an American thing, and in some ways it is a sort of American popularized thing, but the Soviets, um, Lenin, cottoned onto film immediately. So the Soviets were producing thousands of films and they needed music and so all the big composer names were writing stuff and that was safer as well because it was enhancing something socialist realist but it was the idea is that you don't notice it so much but there's some wonderful music by Prokofiev um, uh, uh, Alexander Nevsky which is a kind of secular oratorio it's absolutely stunning um, and it's the music for an Eisenstein movie um, Shostakovich was no exception so that was easier but it's hard to imagine working under such constraints. It's hard to imagine it. You see, as often as said, he who pays the piper calls the tune. And it's twas ever thus. And the constant battle is how you hold on to your artistic integrity and keep food on the table. Um, so, you know, in the Renaissance, it was the problem of artists and composers. Bach faced it, Mozart, Haydn faced it. Beethoven was perhaps one of the first, what we, we might call modern artists, who basically had sponsors who just said, we're just going to give you money, you can just do it now. So he never had to really worry about it. But he was the first. And, and very few ever get into that kind of situation. But then we're not all Beethoven, are we? Um, Michelangelo, Leonardo, and so on, and filmmakers. I mean, what, filmmakers spend all their time just trying to get money and, and investors. Shostakovich writes to his best friend, one of his best friends, Isaac Glickman, and he, he's talking about Beethoven, and he says, I don't think that either the self-deprecation or self-aggrandizement is among the denying qualities of an artist. Beethoven could have been forgiven if his symphonies had gone to his head. In other words, because he's, he was so great. You know, he could be forgiven for being proud. I mean, he gets to be proud in a way. Um, but he could not be forgiven for writing a piece that was amoral, servile, and the work of a flunky. So all the way through, Shostakovich had this thought ricocheting around his brain. Am I a flunky? The difference in Stalinist Russia is it's not just about getting food on your table, it's actually being able to keep breathing. Shostakovich said this, um, almost none of my friends avoided torture, both psychological and physical. And I'll, before I hand back to, to Ruth, here's a little sort of episode that actually captures the psychological effect this had on Dmitri. So Isaac Glickman, so he collected all the letters he received from Shostakovich. There are, one of the difficulties is that there's a very controversial book that came out soon after he died, um, uh, which claimed to have been sort of dictated to um, this guy Volkov. 
and no one really knows how and and um Shoskovitz's children have kind of said mm, yeah not not so much so the the challenge has always been to try and f- find the authentic voice of the composer uh, and Glickman kept all his letters and those are wonderful to read um Shostakovich threw everything away he was not a hoarder so we don't have the other side of the correspondence so Glickman just sort of fills in all the way through um and um, Glickman tells this story um, from 1974. He asked me to sit next to him at a concert of his own music. It was an enormous success. But afterwards, Shostakovich told me what had happened. Just when you went out into the foyer for a cigarette, the conductor Moravinsky appeared and Irina Semyonova, ignoring my request, seated the distinguished guest in your place. I ought to have said, Evgeny Alexandrovich, this is Isaac Davidovich's seat. But I didn't say anything. I didn't have the courage and was afraid of offending Mravinsky. So I sat there, quietly angry with myself, quietly angry with you for going out to smoke, and quietly angry with Irina Nikolaevna for not heeding my request. Glickman goes on, This confession, trivial as it may appear, is a paradigm of Shostakovich's psychological makeup and of the way he behaved to people. He was incredibly fearful and timid. I guess if he'd been diagnosed now, he would have had hyper-anxiety throughout his adult life. But that's no surprise. Lord, how come we hear? Lord, how come we hear? Lord, how come we hear? I wish I'd never been born. Sorrow songs. For every African that survived the Middle Passage, there were between five to six who died before they reached land. One slave wrote, and are we yet alive to see each other's faces? And and are we yet alive to see each other's face? The enslaved African knew their master's shortcomings very well and very quickly realized that their faith was often merely a Sunday profession, which was ignored during the harsh week. Melinda, a slave from Dave County, Missouri, stated, Yes, our master took his slaves to meeting with him. There was always something about that I couldn't understand. They treated us like animals and would not hesitate to sell and separate us, yet they seemed to think we had souls and tried to make Christians of us. Some plantation owners preached Christianity um, as the only way towards freedom, as if liberation and physical freedom on earth was not possible. I'm excited about um, the new discoveries of slavery. It's hard in 2019 to look back through the lens of 2019. You have to understand the culture of the day. And there were those that stood up. Mark said that, you know, how do you hold artistic integrity and put food on the table? How do you not have slaves and put food on? And I am not justifying it. Let's be very clear. But I think we have to talk about the tensions. And I think a lot of times what's forgotten is about the tensions of the culture of that day. There's a plantation owner who was killed because he refused to own slaves. And he was about to move away. 
and they saw the, the community there saw that as a protest, and they killed him. There's one whose wife, it's a beautiful story, the mistress writing to her sister in New York saying over and over again, I hope that the word of God pierces my husband's heart and he stops with the owning slaves, homing human <laughs> beings. And he, the word of God did infiltrate his heart. And slowly but slowly, he started to sell his slaves off when really what he was doing was helping them to get up to Canaan land, which was code for Canada. And the remaining ones who were older or sick or just too fearful, talk about psychological, they're like, I'm not going to, I know this evil, I'm not trying to be introduced to any other new evil. And he sold his vast plantation, moved to a really, really rural part of North Carolina and allowed them to divide the land up and live free. And no one went out there. So there were these acts of resistance in the midst of it. Um, but it is amazing that an enslaved African would be able to see through the, um, the hypocrisy of the Christianity of the religion that was taught and embrace their savior. And they did that because of the ancient Hebrews they um, did it because they sympathized with Jesus and this cross. Maybe the same God who understands suffering will come down and free us. Dvorak, a music and composer, world fame, loved the African-American spirituals. And he used the spirituals as a basis for a symphony from the New World Symphony Number no. 9 in E minor, which premiered in New York in 1893. Vorjak states, here in the music you have neglected, even despised, is something spontaneous, sincere, and different, native to your country. Why not use it? He's asking the composers, why are you imitating European classical music when you have this treasure? The problem is they didn't see it as treasure. Theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer studied in New York in the 1930s as a musician in his own right, he was a musician. He appreciated the African-American spirituals. He heard at Abyssinian Baptist Church and recorded them and took them back to Germany for his students. Redemption through suffering? If the spirituals were the quest for freedom, then the blues were certainly the burden of freedom, of newfound freedom. Grief, sadness, abandonment, Loneliness, pain, and suffering were the solemn reality of life. Emancipation in Abraham Lincoln's America legally proclaimed freedom to the enslaved Africans, but true freedom was not to be. The newly liberated Africans was in most cases still viewed and treated as only part human. As Lincoln truly believed in his heart as he signed the Emancipation Proclamation, he did not believe that African slaves were 100% human when he signed their quote-unquote freedom. Their skin's complexion served as an easy, easily identifiable passport. Life was hard. I hate to see the evening sun go down. Yes, I hate to see the evening sun go down because it makes me think I'm on my last go round. W.C. Handy, St. Louis Blues. The blues tells us about the hardship of this path we call, path we call life. 
but it also asks the questions, the hard questions, the questions we ask ourselves. Elsie was sitting on a rock on the plantation, and word came that freedom was here. The whole entire community of enslaved Africans jumped up and down and danced, and they said, Elsie, come dance. You're free. Not yet. Danced. More and said, Elsie, you're the matriarch of the plantation. We need to see you dance. You lived to see freedom. Not yet, she replied. And finally, they really came hard on her and said, you must dance. And it's an African tradition. We'll talk about that later. But you must stand up and dance as the matriarch and celebrate. And she said, I will dance, but where's my husband? Where's my father? Where's my mother? Where's my sisters? Where's my children? Where's my nieces, my cousins? Where are they? I'll dance, but not yet. Elsie gives us great theology to be present in our suffering, to be present in our grief, to be present in our sadness, which is... And I'm sure all of you are old enough to have experienced the blues. Excruciating. But she says, I'm not giving in to fake dancing. I think Elsie knew, like, mm-mm, there's any freedom. <laughs> but she said, I'll dance, but not yet. I'll dance, but not yet. Oh, Lord, trouble so hard. Oh, Lord, trouble so hard. Oh, Lord, trouble so hard. I wish I'd never been born. Oh, I went up the hill the other day. My soul got happy and I stayed all day. Oh, Lord, trouble so hard. Oh, Lord, trouble so hard. Oh, Lord, trouble so hard. I wish I'd never been born. I went in the room. I didn't stay long. I looked on the bed and brother was dead. Oh, Lord, trouble so hard. Oh, Lord, trouble so Never been born. I wish I've never been born. I wish I've never been. Probably wondering, 
I thought this was about music. Well, we're going to come to some Shostakovich music as well. I'm not saying that wasn't music. I mean, um, <laughs> I'm hot. Um, <clears throat> Shostakovich was incredibly sensitive. And he hated discrimination of any sort, and he detested the anti-Semitism that was writ large through the Soviet Union. And um, even though it was technically anathema, I mean, the whole point of the communist revolution was equality, um, but that didn't stop it, of course. Um, and he, he, he just couldn't bear the fact of anybody suffering anything. Um, and, and yet, of course, this was the 20th century. I mean, it's the century of suffering, an incredibly dangerous place to live wherever you are, particularly in Eurasia. He wrote this. Um, he said, uh, I feel eternal pain for those who were killed by Hitler, but I feel no less pain for those killed on Stalin's orders. I suffer for everyone who is tortured, shot or starved to death. And I think that is the key to him. It is his profound, visceral empathy with those who suffered. And that is what comes through in the music in the most astonishing way. Um, and that is why he resonates so strongly with people once they understand. Now, of course, his music is a bit intimidating at first. Perhaps you're not into sort of orchestral music, um, sort of classical music. And certainly when it gets to chamber music, that becomes very sort of obscure sometimes. And, and for the purest only, it seems. But, but um, I, I want to encourage you that actually he is much more accessible than you think. But once you get into seeing what his language is, it's like learning a new language. Once you begin to get the sound of that, then you can see the beauty in it. I do a lot of work in Turkey. I'm in Turkey at least once, sometimes twice a year. Um, I don't speak much Turkish at all. I've got a few words. But boy, I love the sound of the language now, just being immersed in it. It's actually a glorious language. Um, just to listen to the sound of it. So I think it's similar with, with some of these great composers. And I think you can see how he expresses human pain, both publicly as a sort of corporate act, but also privately. And I just want to give you a few hints of both of those. Now, I don't know whether you've thought about this, but one of the horrors of the 20th century is that you have to choose between Hitler and Stalin. One of them will win. So how do you choose? Now, we all know what happened. Um, and I've not been able to track down it since, but a few years ago, there were some ultra-secret documents released from <clears throat> the Cabinet War Rooms in the UK and, and are now in the National Archives in Kew, um, where Churchill, in about 42, 40, yeah, 42, asked the impossible but obvious question, should we just deal with Hitler and then change sides? So obviously there was no, absolutely no um, way they were going to make peace with Hitler himself, uh, let alone the Nazis. But, but could we do a deal? And basically he knew what communism was like. He had been speaking out against communism since the Russian Revolution. And you have to at least ask that question. Of course, he asked only sort of two or three of his absolutely most trusted aides because if, you know, if that got out during the war, that could have been a, a nightmare. And they, they looked at it, they looked at all the different ins and outs, and of course, in the end, decided that they couldn't do that. But I sympathize with the question. And what we forget is also how close the Nazis actually did get to winning. 
and they were within just miles. You could hear the bombardments from the Nazi advance in Moscow. So Stalin's government was evacuated to, a, to another city hundreds of miles away. But the two cities that represent the horror most are Leningrad and Stalingrad, St. Petersburg and Volgograd, uh, to give their ancient, older and now modern names. Uh, you see, one of the things is that Stalin, he was Georgian from the Caucasus. He had always loathed St. Petersburg, Leningrad. He just had a sort of visceral thing. Well, he had lots of issues, didn't he? He had a visceral thing about the city. So uh, he didn't have much sympathy for the humanity of it. It was just in terms of its strategic value militarily. And, and so um, he was quite happy to see the city suffer if that was advantageous to their campaign. And the Eastern Front was an astonishing thing. I don't think we realize how huge it was. It's the distance between New York City and Mexico City. Okay, two and a half thousand miles long was the Eastern Front. It's just mind-boggling. And the Leningrad siege lasted for two and a half years with daily horrors for thousands. Soviet access was only possible in winter when the sea iced over and they could carry convoys across the ice. But the rest of the time, and in summer, it was worse because they were totally isolated um, and uh, the heat uh, was grim and there was even less food than the winter. And for three and a half years, the city was shelled daily from German lines and from the Luftwaffe in the air. People were so hungry that they would eat anything that moved and there were frequent reports of cannibalism people be walking down the street they just collapse and die and be left there historian Michael Walzer summarized this he says the siege of Leningrad killed more civilians than the bombing of Hamburg Dresden Hiroshima Nagasaki combined the US military academy evaluated that Russian casualties during the siege were bigger than the combined American and British casualties from the whole war just from this one city and in the midst of this, Shostakovich wrote a symphony. The authorities smuggled him out, actually, as a, a valuable asset to the state, so they couldn't let him be killed there. They took him to the evacuated capital of uh, Kuibyshev, which is now Samara, as it had been before, uh, in order to complete the work. They'd heard that he'd started it. And the propaganda value, can you imagine, the propaganda value of a symphony composed by Leningrad's most famous symphonist and composer and citizen was lost on nobody. And when he did finish it, the truth was, this was not propaganda, the truth was as it did rally valley, uh, troops and allies across the world. It was performed in Britain and the US very soon after. He even got onto the cover of Time magazine later composers mocked him for this repeated motif because it just goes on and on and on it's almost on a par with Ravel's Bolero which is guaranteed to drive people certifiably insane <laughs> but this has purpose it does drive you insane but then of course you see the point is you're sitting in the city and just a few miles away are the lines. And the snare drum has a very specific military connotation. This tune could be a sort of hunting tune. You could almost have had it in Haydn and Mozart where they're sort of hunting symphonies and 
They're hunting horns, but it's hunting of a very different sort. And there's some funny things going on underneath that are a bit more unsettling. That's early on, and then cut to a bit later in the first movement. Still the same tune, has a very different flavor now. That's not the end of it, it goes on more. Uh, the first movement is about 15 minutes long. <clears throat> now, that photograph was taken at the premiere in Leningrad during the siege. It was not the premiere of the piece. They'd um, had a few performances in Samara, uh, and the, 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 the score was smuggled out to the West in, in little tubes, and it was played in London and New York and other places very, very soon. But this is the remarkable thing. This is what the legends are about, because 
the challenges were enormous. Most of the Leningrad Symphony Orchestra A team had been moved out because they were too precious. So it was the B team that was left. And there were only 15 people left in the city who were in the B orchestra. And the, the A team conductor was out. There was a B team conductor, a chap called Karl Eliasberg. And, and so they, they sort of trawled the, the Russian armies and others for, you know, is there anybody who can play an instrument here? And they were just all sort of rallied in to, 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 to rehearse. And it's an incredibly difficult piece. It's about an hour. So it's very demanding. And particularly for the woodwind, they could only have full orchestral rehearsals for 15 minutes because the woodwind were just exhausted because they didn't have food. And they, by the time they had the, the first full concert performance, they'd only gone through the whole piece once. Uh, but they milked the propaganda, so they wired up speakers all along the front so that the Germans could hear it. They knew exactly what it was. And there were stories about, you know, if they're able to do this while we're doing this to them, how are we ever going to beat them? And in a sense, that's right. <laughs> Uh, there's a very important book that um, both Ruth and I know of um, called How Shostakovich Changed My Mind. And it's one of my most precious books. It only came out last year by a British musicologist called Stephen Johnson, who's on BBC Radio 3 a lot. Um, and he um, interviewed um, as many people who are alive. This was about six to ten years ago, who were still alive, who'd been in that performance. And he met this guy, Victor Kozlov, who was a clarinetist. So he was one of the, 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 the woodwind and uh, this is Stephen Johnson now describing. Um, Kozlov is leaning forward now, almost touching me, his eyes moist but radiant. There was a lot of applause. People were standing. One woman even gave the conductor flowers. Can you imagine? There was nothing in the city. And yet this one woman found flowers somewhere. It was wonderful. Johnson says, then following, uh, there followed something crucial. This wasn't escapism, it wasn't false hope or desperate wish fulfillment, quite the opposite. Here's Kozlov. The music touched people because it reflected the siege. This was wartime, everybody felt and they shared and understood this music. People were thrilled and astounded that such music was played even during the siege. You see, in the Leningrad Symphony, this is Johnson again, Shostakovich held up a mirror to the horror Reflected, that, reflected back that horror to those to whom it all but destroyed, and in response they had roared their approval, their delight, their gratitude to the composer for giving form to their feelings. And pastorally, and I'm a pastor primarily, that is supremely important. But I want to just, before I hand back, come to the private pain because this is the side that is harder to access and resonate with but it is even more pressure uh, some of you will know that I've battled with depression for 15 years and have written about it uh, for me personally actually in the end it's music that is the only thing that sustained me and I've mentioned that Dimitri was a nervous man uh, he said this in a letter to Glickman in 1961 I jump out of my skin every time I see a policeman. Uh, I lived in Uganda for a few years. I was working in a seminary there. I was arrested twice, basically by police who wanted bribes. I would have to pray every time I drove to work in the mornings because there were police checks on average every couple of weeks. You had to show papers, blah, blah, blah. It was all normal. But basically, that was one of the biggest things for me, just going through the police checks. He said this, 
If they cut off both hands, I will compose music anyway, holding the pen in my teeth. He had resisted it for years, and um, um, eventually it was impossible. He had refused all his life to join the Communist Party. He managed to survive throughout the Stalin years without joining. But in 1960, he was elevated unanimously against his will as first secretary of the Union of Russian Federation Composers. And so massive pressure was put on him to join the party. There had been precedents of others in similar positions who had not joined, but it would have been such a coup for the party to get him. And so he's summoned by this official Pospilov. Um, and he writes at length in the letters to Glickman about this. And it was just ghastly. But um, I'm just going to quote a tiny little bit. It goes on for pages. Has he's, he's recounting what it was like that week, and he had to go in every day. I had almost lost the power of speech, but somehow managed to stammer, my, uh, stammer out my unworthiness to accept such an honour of being invited to join the party. Uh, clutching at straws, I, I said, oh, well, you see, I've never fully succeeded in grasping the precepts of Marxism. And of course, he had failed the exam once. And surely, surely it'd be important to wait till I've mastered Marxism before I join the party, you know? I mean, it's a bit too soon. That didn't work. Then I pleaded religious beliefs, which he had none. But Pospilov would not hear of my objections. Eventually, it was too much. Later, I had another meeting with Pospilov when he renewed his efforts and once again simply backed me into a corner. In the end, I lost my nerve and just gave in. He never got over the shame for the rest of his life. He died in 76. So the last 15 years of his life, he was crippled by the sense, yes, he was a party member now. One or two friends claimed that he had admitted to becoming suicidal. Just a few weeks later, he poured out his heart and soul into the eighth quartet. He wrote 15. He was at a composer's retreat. He was meant to be writing some film music. He just couldn't get his brain around that. And uh, he wrote to Glickman, I compose my eighth quartet, this ideologically flawed quartet, which is of no use to anybody. Now, quartet music, particularly once you get into the 20th century, that is some of the most abstruse, abstract, and difficult music to penetrate. It's, it's, it's almost a sort of distillation of music at its most pure. It's like sort of triple distilled gin, and very good for you. No, no, no I didn't. <laughs> And it's often the hardest part of a composer's oeuvre to get into. And so I, I know it feels intimidating and difficult. But think of it as an intimate conversation with a public figure that you get to spend time with in private. And you have to lean in and, and strain to hear exactly what they're saying. Because he's only whispering now. The thing you need to know is um, Dimitri's musical signature. Bach used to do the same thing all, of, all the time, B-A-C-H. And, of course, if you know about German notation, um, B-A-C, if you know um, basic um, sort of Western notation, that's um, in the scale. H is not in the scale, of course, but for some reason, I don't know, I've never had a, a German friend explain this to me, but for some reason, um, B is B-flat and H is B-natural. Weird, odd, I don't know. There we go. And now Shostakovich takes it a stage further because uh, an E flat in Germany is known as ES or S. 
So E flat becomes the S of Shostakovich. So he takes it S C. Um, um, uh, what, did, what did I say? S C. Uh, it's going to come up. I, 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 complete <laughs> mental blank. There we go. And um, this is his musical. <coughs> D. That's the D. <laughs> okay, that's D for Dimitri. S C H. S for E flat. C for C, and then B for H for just B natural. It should be B flat. Oh, well, anyway, don't worry about it. You get the idea. Um, now, he included this little signature in at least 10 works, and, um, and several others, and the eighth quartet begins with just a solo of those notes. And he writes it in a kind of fury and agony in the hour, the days after he became a party member.
two years after the work's premiere in 1962, the Borodin Quartet, there's a photograph of Shostakovich in the middle with the Borodin Quartet, one of the Soviet Union's top quartets, played all over the world. They played the work uh, to the composer in his Moscow apartment um, when they were learning it, um, hoping for constructive criticism and, you know, just, you know, get it from the horse's mouth. Instead, they played this through and Shostakovich had his head buried in his hands, weeping throughout. When they got to the end, the musicians thought the best thing to do was just sort of quietly pack up and, and leave, and they left him head in hands, bawling his eyes out. Not only did he express public pain, it was the only way he could express his private pain. But in the midst of all this, there's hope. Why does God allow suffering? Why do we have so much pain, sorrow, and loss? There are no ifs. We will suffer. We will have to endure loss, affliction, and grief. We will see the darkness approach and face the pain. We will endure, moan, and sing the blues. The blues teach us that if we embrace this life, we have to endure what this life can bring. God's word teaches us that if we embrace Christ and his cross, we must also embrace what that cross represents and brings. Jesus tells us, take up our cross and follow him. But we must drink of the cup which God gives. Jesus went before us, and he recognizes the struggle to obey and the struggle to relinquish our will and our way. It is the same Jesus who will send a comforter in the garden of our blues. As the saying goes, you cannot experience the unspeakable joy of Resurrection Sunday without the darkness and pain of Good Friday. Jesus gathers himself and utters the words that we all must say, not my will, but thine be done. The blues sung mournfully in the Garden of Gethsemane teach us that through the horror of the darkest night, in the midst of the shadow of death, there is light present. Joy in the midst of sorrow, hope in the midst of the blues. The blues teach us that we can endure. God's word shows us that when we drink of that bitter cup, we are a servant of the Most High King, that we have to obey, relinquish, and love. And usually, the path of pain and suffering is also part of the pathway to deliverance in our eternal home. God will deliver us, just like he did the enslaved Africans. And yes, deliverance may take a long while. The creator and redeemer calls us by name. We will pass through the waters and God will be with us. The waters will not sweep over us. We will walk through the fire and not be burned. 
and the end, we will not be consumed, but delivered to eternal joy with our Savior, our Deliverer, our Healer, and Lord. No more waters of pain, no more, no more rivers of suffering, no more fires of grief, no more flames of loss. Bessie Smith, the great blues singer, once said, the greatest blues singer in the world will never stop singing. The man of sorrows, the first and greatest musician, the greatest blues singer who sang the greatest blues line, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the one who the prophet Zephaniah tells us went through the most terrible suffering the world has ever known and is that one who sings over us with joy. Jesus does not promise you will not suffer, sorry. But Jesus, the ultimate blues singer, will never stop singing through suffering and lament. And he did the sacrificial gift of love so that we one day, will one day have the great day of joy of singing praises with him forevermore. If we are truly willing to take up the cross. Sing and by God's grace and mercy somehow endure. We will be truly and completely free one day. Our Savior will never leave us nor forsake us. He goes before us and walks with us from darkness to light, from ashes to beauty, from singing the blues to singing with pure joy. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Since I laid my burden down, it is not happiness. Happiness is built on and dependent on circumstances. It's joy. In the darkest night and the darkest shadows, they are light, and that's what the African-American spirituals teach us. They have survived hundreds of years, not on cheap hope, but true hope, that dangerous, dangerous expression to hope in the midst of darkness. And we can do that because Jesus is the light of the world and our hope. The clock is ticking. We have to be in the sanctuary any minute now. The doors are unlocked. I know. I suddenly lost my nerve. Shostakovich was asked, do you believe in God? And he said, no. And I'm very sorry about that. His expression of hope was not an articulated, reformed, biblical expression. But he was a channel of astonishing common grace. And let me just start, and you can leave when you can bear it. 
This is his second piano concerto written for his son, Maxime. It's only Pete. For his son, Maxime's 19th birthday, and Maxime performed the premiere. And this is a recording with Maxime conducting and Maxime's son, Dimitri Jr., playing the piano. Three generations. And in the midst of all of this, in 1957, this is the result. How to turn a colossal grand piano into a feather. Thank <laughs> you. 